Hi, I'm Corey Chonsky, and welcome to my podcast, One House at a Time. As a former Naval officer, I'm proud and feel lucky that I was mentored to think about my post-military career and invest in real estate. That decision has helped me to create a level of security and wealth I didn't realize was possible. My mission is to help both those in and out of the military do the same. Each week, I will coach those in need around how to build wealth, as well as to interview some of the most successful folks and how they built their own financial freedom. Welcome to One House at a Time. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of One House at a Time. I have a fantastic guest on the show today, uh, Lisa Chastain, and she is a financial advisor, money coach, that she has created her own system called Stop Budgeting. And it's really a a great approach in terms of how you deal with managing your own money, you know, putting money aside for investments. And that's one of the foundational steps that you need to get down in order to really look at building your own real estate investment portfolio. And so really lucky to have Lisa on the show today. And uh, just real quick, uh, she's been in the financial business for 10 years now. Uh, first part of that was advising high net worth individuals before separating to become a money coach. And so a lot of great insight and really looking forward to having her on the show and kind of being able to give a great perspective to real estate investors. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks for having me. And thank you for your service. Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh-huh. So... Um, what kind of brought you into the financial world? Was that something that you had always planned on doing or was there something that was, you know, as you were growing up that kind of, like something really stuck with you that kind of drove you to that field? Yeah, I knew nothing about money growing up. I grew up in a blue collared family. My dad's a stagehand by trade. So I'm a union kid and, um, and we grew up blue collared in North Las Vegas, Las Vegas area. And I really didn't know what I didn't know when it came to money. And it was through a career change that I was led to financial advising. Uh, My first career is in higher education. I was the director of advising for the Honors College at UNLV. And that was when I left UNLV. I was the outgoing director in 2011. I was 31 years old. I did that to stay home with my son for a few years. And a few years after that, for a lot of reasons, I decided that it was time for me to go back to work. One, I just wasn't great at being a stay-at-home mom. (laughs) I really have a lot of dreams and ambitions, and I wanted to get back into the world of work. The other one was that my marriage was on the rocks, and I knew that if I was going to get out of that marriage, I had to also get back to making money. So that was the personal side of things. In my search, I knew that I wanted to work with people. I didn't really think I wanted to go back to higher education. So I had to start thinking about what I really wanted out of my life. And I got an email from Farmers Insurance. And uh, because I had put my resume out there, they do this prospecting all the time. And they said, hey, by running a farmer's insurance office, you could make $400,000 a year. And having only ever made $56,000 a year, I felt like that was a good deal. (laughs) That sounds like a win. Yeah. So I called my best friend at the time, who was also my financial advisor, and I said, is this legit? She goes, it is, but if you really do want to make a difference with people and money, you should join my firm. And that's where it all started, and that was in 2013. So you almost became an insurance mogul and instead decided to jump into the financial advisory realm. I didn't, you know, so I I advise and coach and mentor a lot of women in their late 20s and early 30s. 
And there's this awakening that happens where we realize, okay, we're not getting any younger. And very few, I mean, one of my best friends in high school, she loved chemistry. And I was like, you're ridiculous. Like, this is ridiculous. I hate chemistry. (laughs) But, you know, there's very few people having also advised some of the top talent and top students on the planet. Very few of them walk into college knowing exactly who they are and exactly what they want to do in their lives. So I had to do some personal investigation and some personal discovery to figure out what my path was going to be. I think now, now, knowing what I know now, I jumped into personal finance and, and into financial advising because that was my biggest area for growth. I knew nothing about investing and all of the things. So that was for me first, and then it took off from there. And I suppose you probably see that amongst a lot of the women in the age range that you mentioned. And mm-hmm. with that, like, what, what, how did you kind of gear your system more towards women? Um, with that in mind? I, well, in the coaching world, we have a saying that we end up coaching people that are like us. <laughs> yes. And so the women that were coming to me already for coaching, not necessarily financial coaching, but just coaching and mentoring were about 10 years younger than me. And so I started to connect the dots of who I was passionate about working with. And in the finance industry, sadly, there's, you know, with, with the way that financial advisory firms are structured, you can't really make a lot of money working with younger people who have no assets. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was where I was like, well, I do want to make a difference with young people. And women are already coming to me for guidance and support. And now looking back, you know, 10 years ago, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work for us to do as women in finance. So I'm grateful to be championing that cause today. No, that's awesome. And as someone who has three daughters, uh, one in her early 20s, this is obviously a, a, a very important topic to me because, I mean, I can obviously approach finance and investments from a certain perspective, but that there's obviously probably maybe a better voice out there for them that can help make things resonate with them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I mean, obviously a, a big thing and probably a thing that, you know, is needed out there as you don't necessarily see a lot of people approaching finance from that perspective. It's a softer approach. I got that feedback yesterday. I was working with a local bank in town and I got to talk to all of their employees. And that was the feedback I got. This is a much softer approach to finance. And I think that the industry is ready for that. Yeah, and it's sometimes like, you know, just any person in general obviously can feel overwhelmed when it comes to their financial, you know, picture. And so, I mean, it it can be so helpful when you can connect with that person that's sitting there and explain it to you. You know, having been in the Navy for over 20 years, like my my approach is very direct and to the point. And it's like, mm-hmm. why aren't you know what it which resonates with a lot of certain people, but not necessarily everyone. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, I, my I obviously talk to my kids about financial nature, but I you never really know, especially when they're younger, like how is it coming across? Is yeah. it really ingrained? Is there a better approach for you know my girls and yeah one of the best things that you can do for your kids is model because there's these um in in a psychological perspective kids that are role modeled pick up on it faster than those who aren't so your your daughters one is past her modeling year so now it really is like game on for her Mm -hmm. to take what she knows and what she's learned and implement it but for your younger daughters they're in a really important part of their lives so by modeling financial responsibility 
the concepts may not land, but they'll get it even from an unconscious perspective that financial responsibility and financial growth and wealth is something that's important. So you're doing that work even on an unconscious level. And especially when you look at kind of what's going on across the United States where you're seeing debt, like household debt, just increasing at such a rapid rate. Like there's probably a lot of kids across the country that may or not may not be seeing that correct modeling at home. And, exactly. you know, that's going to be habits that they will have to break themselves of down the road. Right. You know, otherwise it's like, because even when I look back at my childhood, it was wasn't so much that I was involved with my, my parents financial, you know, picture or anything, knew very little about it. And, you know, I don't know if what they were doing rubbed off on me or if it was just, you know, a natural inclination for me down the road to really look into investments and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, prepare myself in a financial nature. Yeah. And I think women. We have some work to do in terms of financial role models for women. Seeing another woman build wealth and have financial conversations for a woman is really important. And bridging that gap is, I think, exactly why we're on the on the call today. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's one of those things that even in in real estate, and I think you before we jumped on the call, you talked about how you had um, clients that were looking to get into real estate. But again, that's one of those things that they may not necessarily see a lot of women role models when it mm -hmm. comes to real estate and, a, you know, a male heavy industry. And so it's not necessarily that if you want to get into a, a field that you what's out there, you know, is, is kind of what's out there. But at the same time, if there are people that are like you in a specific field, yeah. it really helps you connect to that field. That's right. And I think that for, for women, where the biggest opportunity in real estate today is to get some mentorship. And modeling can happen at any age. We have to be willing to ask for help and know that people want to teach. Like, I, I'm so grateful for what you do because you actively want to help people build wealth one house at a time. So for women to know that you, they can also do that is huge because they don't necessarily think about that. But there are some practical things going back to the stop budgeting experience with me. There are some things that we need to make sure are in, in order and that you have a safe place to ask questions and you have a safe place to understand the risk that's involved. So women are afraid of looking stupid. So by asking questions, they need to know they can go to a mentor and have an open, honest dialogue and learn in a safe place rather than feeling stupid. And money, I don't think that we've totally gotten there in the financial space. So what are some of the struggles that you're gonna see coming up over the next 10 years as we have a new group of people and women uh, more specifically? What, what are those challenges that they're gonna have to face over the, you know, as they come in from the, their late teens into their mid to late 20s? Well, one thing is kind of like we saw with the 2008 recession, we have now looking at over 10 years later, we've got a, a, a community and a generation of people who are like, we don't, we don't want this to ever happen again when it comes to the housing crisis. So they learn those, they learn those experiences so that, you know, your daughter learned those experiences, maybe not directly, but saw what happened to our country as a result of the lending practices that we had even in 2008. Mm -hmm. This is the generation that's going to work actively to make sure that doesn't happen again. 
and they're not quite full adults yet. But I think in 10 years, we'll see home ownership being more accessible, but also people get, which is why we see more young adults that are staying home longer, like over half of the young adults in America, and I don't know if your daughter still lives at home or not, but it's likely she does based on the data. So young people are deciding to stay home longer for financial stability. Where, where that'll be in 10 years, maybe they'll have more assets, but on the maturity scale, they're, they're putting off having kids, they're putting off, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe families will stay intact more. I don't exactly know. Um, but I think this generation, especially your daughter's age, really value financial stability. Yeah, I was having a conversation with her recently, and not to like throw out numbers, but like yeah. her rent was actually more than what our mortgage is, which was yep. she she lives with her boyfriend, and she they had to bring in another roommate to ensure that they could, you know, live in the place yep. that they wanted to. And that was, I was actually a little surprised by that. I was like, wow, your your rent is more than what we pay in our mortgage. And it's, you know, we live in our house here in Virginia and she lives in a duplex up in, mm -hmm. you know, outside of the Twin Cities. And it was like, I was a little shocked. I mean, I have a good sense of what, you know, rents are doing in certain markets that I follow, but like, like yeah, I was just a little shocked that my my you know 22 almost 23 year old yeah. daughter's rent was was higher than what our mortgage was yeah and that um that i think is in direct correlation to where we're at as a real estate market and also you know one home at a time it's a great it's a great <clears throat> opportunity for someone especially capitalizing on where we were at in 2008 to buy a home for less and now rent it out so people are listening, they're following the model, and then we're seeing higher rents for a lot of reasons, but creating a passive income is one of them. People wanna keep their homes and rent them out, or millennials right now are actually buying homes and not living in them and renting them out. Yeah. I'm so the cost of rent, we're seeing Americans in debt, one, because cost of living has gone up. For our younger people, they're, they're figuring it out just exactly how you said. They're just, they're bringing more people together. We'll see how that all shakes out in 10 years. I don't know. I want to be in that conversation in 10 years to help everyone navigate it. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some adjustments that you're seeing that uh, we kind of talked about one with the living situation, but what are some other adjustments that you're seeing or recommending to people with the inflation, inflation environment that we're in right now? Right. So with personal finance specifically, the majority of the clients that come to me and that I teach are really wanting to break the paycheck to paycheck cycle. And the reason I've, I've moved into this stop budgeting conversation is that there, um, the, a budget doesn't require you to be in totally active management with your money. And what I mean by that is there aren't systems in place on a daily basis where you know exactly what money you have to spend and what money you don't have to spend. The majority of Americans are still banking out of one main account, trying to make sense of it. And I don't know how you organize your finances, but the very first thing that I'm working with all of my clients on is to actually create a spending account, do an audit. So I teach how to do an audit of what you're making, you're spending, and you're keeping every single month. And the truth is that when I do this audit with the majority of my clients, they realize that they do have enough money, but they're stuck in this paycheck to paycheck cycle because they don't have any other system in place to be able to make decisions. So by having a spending account, this could be something you take back to your daughter, you can manage the money that you have coming in and paying bills out of one account. 
but move the money that you're spending into a spending account and manage that money and be mindful of that money. It's a much easier, simpler way to get out of that paycheck to paycheck cycle because you're not using a debit card out of one account. It's very hard day to day to know what's going on. And it does break the, the roller coaster effect financially too. Yeah, we, that gives control. Yeah, we do something similar to that where we have, I think we have like three bank accounts that we yep. use and we kind of funnel it from one area to one, you know, different areas depending on what it's being used for, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so if we can simplify that, for me, they never budgets never worked, which is why I'm really passionate about not using budgets. Let's learn how to track our money and be in relationship with our money in a new way. And then be savvy, right? We have a lot of multi-generational homes being built in Las Vegas. Duplexes, fourplexes are being utilized for multi-families. This higher cost of living, people are coming back together and leveraging their strengths and their money together. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. We just have to make sure people have a plan for the money that they are spending and the money that they do have so they can feel like they can live their life because they work hard. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that um, we've been doing that for, I want to say like three or four, maybe five years. I don't, I don't remember mm -hmm. when we exactly started. Um, and it was something that, you know, it allows you to separate it out and you can then really focus on Oh, you know what? This is our spending account, and we really went crazy this time. Yeah. Or, and it, it kind of helps you. I think you identify where where things are going wrong easier than if it's all just lumped into one account. Yeah, and where things are going right. Yes, and where things are right. going right. I think that in in terms of building wealth, <clears throat> one property at a time, one home at a time. Having that simple ability to separate your money for different purposes, being a wealth manager, I was in the wealth management, you know, in the wealth management field directly to get started. Millionaires never have their money in just one place. And your net worth is never accumulated by just one bank account or just one kind of revenue stream or one piece of your portfolio. So we want to teach our young people today that you can keep your money simple. And one of the best ways to do that is to keep it separate by purpose. So when you do have your first property that you're using to build passive income, it, you see it as a business and you see it separate from the life that you're living today. And that's very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, and there's obviously a lot of uh, additional reasons that you want to keep that money separated, um, you know, from a liability perspective, accounting yep. perspectives, you know, tax perspectives yep. that if you are able to get this down early on in your early years, like it only pays a lot of dividends down the road. See, so, you know, it helps you probably organize things a little better. Overall, once you understand it, it's simpler. And then as you start your, you know, multiple, pa you know, passive income streams, it you sets you up for that as well. Exactly, exactly. So um, as you work with people, I'm, I'm assuming not just in Los Angeles, but kind of across the country, mm -hmm. does it require you to take a different approach if they're in different areas of the country? Every client has a different situation. Every client comes to me, and that's why I'm, I'm really not a fan of blanket advice, which is why I'm also not a fan of budgeting in a traditional sense, that you get a budgeting template and then you have to apply it to your life. Everybody has unique positions, but someone in New York, for sure, especially during the pandemic, 
their financial life and situation is very different than someone living in the Midwest. Cost of living, <coughs> buying property, as you know, it varies from state to state, different rules, different regulations, state taxes, you know, federal taxes, all of those things we have to take into consideration about where is your money going. Uh, so I'm in Las Vegas, so I'm a neighbor to Los Angeles oh, yeah, and sorry. California. No worries, no worries. The cost of living, I mean, even us in Vegas driving to California, gas prices are more than a dollar more expensive in California than they are in Las Vegas. So yes, everybody's individual place of residence, everybody's individual situation has to be considered so we can set up systems for them to win. Makes sense. And it's, you know, similar to when we go invest in, say, Houston versus Virginia. There, yeah. There's a lot of differences that we need to take into account. Absolutely. You know, you might find a property that's going to, you know, the mortgage payment might be X amount per month, but the rent going rate is at a different rate. And so you have to figure all of that out. I have people that they even though they're they have a second property, they're underwater in that property. And also, I would I would invite any guests to make sure that you're raising your rent according to the cost of living and that you're really making sure that you're planning for property taxes. I'm sure these are things that you teach, but these are some pitfalls that I see with families who have multiple properties is they're not really moving with the cost of living and they end up underwater potentially or they're not saving for significant events that happen in that rental home or that other property and that that hurts them too yeah absolutely it's it's one of those things that even if you have a really good tenant and there's there's some folks out there that they take the approach of like having a really good tenant is worth value to me that i'm not necessarily going to just always jack up their rent but the fact is, is like, even if you have a good tenant, you need to constantly raise that rent if they're going to mm -hmm. be there for a long period of time, because your, you know, your cost associated with that property 10 years ago is different than what it is today. And you've never raised that rent. You're doing yourself a disservice. Absolutely. And that's, we, I, we get those questions in my, in my office of where is my money going? And those are the first places that we look, let's just simplify it and look at your fixed expenses and what's really going on there and then they can make some informed decisions about that, what they want to do with it. But also we have different money types. So I have this over generous money type that wants to like save the world financially. And so you can't do that when it comes to real estate because you're going to end up really um, being in a, in a more painful situation later on. Yeah, because all it, you know, as well and good as that is, and you, you definitely want to create a good environment for your tenant that's at your property. The fact is, is like if you're not a, in a position where you're making money in that property, you're not going to be in a position to keep that property in a, a mm -hmm. safe, clean environment either. Exactly. Exactly. You're not going to have money when you need it. These are things, right? These are things that we talk about. I talk about with my clients, too. You want to make sure that you have money to buy a new fridge when it breaks or that you have money to reinstall carpet when the tenant leaves or that you're going to have a month or two without rent so that you can find the right tenant if one has to leave. You never know because you're not you're not in control that of that person's life. You need to be ready for all the unknowns. Yeah, and I mean, keep in mind that as, as much as you want to have a great tenant, uh, it's it's also an investment for you. I mean, it is. What what's the point of having that property if in the end you're not going to benefit from it? So, exactly. it can be a win-win situation between the landlord and the tenant even though you go on social media and not everyone feels that way. But the, yeah. the fact is, is like it, you can do all the things that help benefit the tenant, 
while at the same time helping to benefit yourself. A hundred percent. I'm all about the win-wins. Yeah. Market rent is one of those best ways. And I mean, it's, it's the market. It's, it's telling you what it should be. So it, it makes That's it a it. little easier. Yes, definitely. I've also seen a good number of people who are investing in Airbnb properties. We'll see how that pans out over the next 10 years as city ordinances get stricter and stricter on those things. But, um, you know, for clients that come into my world who have these dreams and ambitions, the first thing we do is put together a financial strategy and we look and crunch the numbers because it might sound like or feel like the right decision, but we need to make sure the numbers make sense. So that's something I would always advise for anyone who's thinking about buying a second property and, and, the, and figuring out what the use of that property will be for. Make sure you understand the landscape and you understand the rules that are coming down the pipeline for those different areas that you want to buy and make sure you have a financial strategy before you buy the property. Yeah, absolutely. And try to understand which direction things are going as well, because mm -hmm. um, like near where I live in Virginia Beach, like they've really changed the exactly. Airbnb, you know, city ordinance sure. that really limits it to almost non-existent, which then pushed it to some areas where we have some short term rentals. Um, but then um, and not that I'm in this market, but I've heard like you know, Nashville was a big Airbnb market and they've really toned down what you can do and at what points in the city can be Airbnb. Uh, one market that we're invested in, it's it's hospitality, so not so much Airbnb, but the, the city government is very hostile to short-term rentals. And so there, there's more and more areas that are taking that approach, unfortunately, with Airbnbs. Well, I don't blame them. You know, I don't blame them. And in the use of those properties, you can't control exactly who gets into that property. And at the same time, it might, if it, it, my biggest piece of advice for anyone who's maybe doing this for the first time is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. You might be bailing someone else out, unfortunately, who's, yep. they understand what's going on in the market and they're looking for a sucker to take over that property that they're about, you know, they're about to lose their shirt on, I guess. That's right. So, yeah. And just because it's a good buy for you doesn't mean that someone else is going to also see that same value. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of different areas in Las Vegas. You would think most people don't think about Vegas is off this strip, but there are like there's a huge community outside of the strip in Las Vegas and in Henderson, which is where I live. But just because it's 10 minutes from the strip, 10 minutes from the strip doesn't mean it's in the best area. Mm -hmm. And so no, you know, go out, visit, travel the areas before you think about buying a property just because it's a, a price that you can afford doesn't mean it's going to be the best place to get your return on investment either. Maybe cheap for a reason. That's right. <laughs> no. A lot yeah. of uh, real estate investors have unfortunately found that um, the hard way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, in terms of overall, like, you know, we even like the, we have a couple of um, short-term rental uh, properties. And it's one of those things that you, it's like the life that a lot of people want. We're like, oh, if I have houses everywhere, I can rent them out when I'm not there. And then whenever I want, I can visit, which is, is a great plan, but you just have to really be smart about it and figure out the best way to execute that plan. That's where good mentorship and, you know, where I love, I love the, the work that you're up to is that we have, um, we have a very 
a, a very loud community of people who know how to build big podcasts and big shows and create YouTube videos and talk about these things conceptually about how they can be so profitable. And also their work, their work. You can't just pawn this off. You can't buy another property. And even with a property manager, that's going to cost you something mm -hmm. to have someone, someone else manage that. So in making that decision, the first thing I like to do is blow everything out to a big picture. For anyone of any age who wants to invest in property, it's like, what's the big picture here that we're building toward? Because it's easy to lose focus. Now you have cash flow coming in or you have your net worth that's building, but what is all of this money for? I have a family that I work with where they have five rental properties across the United States. So they've got this huge portfolio and they're more or less in an analysis paralysis situation because now they have all these properties, but what are they really for in the first place? Because if you don't need the passive income, are you going to sell them at a certain point? Like, what are we doing here? So buying property for just the sake of buying property is also not very intentional or pur pur uh, purposeful. <laughs> yeah. And we want to make sure as an individual investor, you're not just chasing the Joneses or you're not just chasing the idea of passive income because if you take your eye off the ball, it could be very detrimental to you or you could be in a situation in time not having the freedom bogged down in a property that you don't want to. So you have to take your time and be thorough in the decision-making process, mastering your cash flow and asking bigger questions. Of course, having been a financial advisor, let's look at the big picture of the life that you want to build and make sure that it's congruent and in alignment with that. Exactly. And you'll, you'll hear a lot of time, like, what's your why behind what you're doing? And, and I think that really plays into what you are just mentioning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, passive income is never really bad, never. per se, but, you know, what is your purpose? What is your end goal? Is definitely should be part of the strategy of your life. Because, you know, there is no real thing such as truly passive income. It's, no. there's some work, whether it's in the building of it, the maintaining of it, um, what you're going to do with it down the road that really... It, it's never really passive income. It's more passive than working at W-2 and, you know, doing the daily grind every day. I, I rather deal with the property that I, I'm a little lost about than, you know, going into to work every day. And, I mean, my, mine was a little different, you know, deployments and 12-hour days. And so, um, but even a, a nine-to-five job, it's, I much rather do what I'm doing than deal with that. But you have to have a plan. You have to have a purpose. Otherwise, you're not maximizing your investment dollar. Really, what is is what it boils right. down to. That's right. In any in any area, I agree with that. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that I you know a lot of people are, are buy and hold investors. I consider myself a buy and hold investor, but at the same time, I reevaluate the equity in the property. Right? Is there mm -hmm. a better place that I can then use this dollar? Because, you know, maybe maybe your analysis wasn't 100% correct or maybe there's been a change in the market and maybe you're not getting the best bang for your buck for that, that equity that's in the property. Mm. You could go put that somewhere else and then you see the, the benefits in terms of increased cash flow, increased net worth, and that will benefit you more than this property um, that, you know, the, the market could have shifted and it, it happens. Exactly, exactly. One of the things that I tell my clients is let's make sure that we're making choices based on facts and not beliefs. <laughs> yes.
right? And knowing your numbers, and you can do that in a simple way, but knowing your numbers, tracking your numbers, I have my clients track their net worth every single month because then we can always come back to that when someone's having a conversation that can feel emotional, we go back to the facts. Is your portfolio growing? Is it growing in the direction that you want it to be growing? Where, where else can this money be invested? If this property is really a headache for you, let's figure out how you can shift that asset. Um, those are fun conversations to have with clients. So that kind of brings me back to one of the things I, I see on social media all the time is uh, net worth, right? And mm -hmm. surprisingly, there's a big discussion about what, whether or not to include your own personal residence in your net worth. Me personally, I've always included it because why not? It's it's actual equity. It you don't cash flow from your own home, but it's it increases in value. But apparently, Absolutely. there's a lot of people that are like, oh, you can't include your own your own primary residence, and I, I don't understand. That's it. ludicrous. That's ludicrous. I think I don't I don't I've never heard that actually. I don't know where <clears> that <throat> comes from, because the majority of Americans have built wealth through property ownership using their primary residence. We'll see how that shifts with your daughter's generation and my son's generation, my son's 15. But for now, if we're looking at the end game, having a property that is paid off and earning over time, that's a family legacy. And also as you age, that's an, your ability to downsize and use that cash for other things that you need it for. So I don't know why you wouldn't yeah. use it in your net worth. Yeah, and like I said, it's it also increases in value. Um, I mean, for the longest time, uh, one of the best real estate books I had, um, and I think maybe this is where it stems from, uh, was Rich Dad Poor Dad, and sure. he obviously talks very, not very highly of personal homes, and I think Grant uh -huh. Cardone, another real estate guy, does the same thing. But the sure. fact is, is it's it has been really successful for so many generations of Americans to build wealth is through your primary residence. Maybe not the best way to do it, but it is a way to do it. And it, there's money, there is equity in that house, you know, 99 out of 100 times. I mean, there's certain times where maybe that's not the case, but it it appreciates just like every other property. And yes, I like the cash flow for my properties, but I'm not gonna discount what is building in my own primary residence. No, I don't know why you would. And, uh, you know, without totally understanding those exact philosophies, that's fine. But the, the truth and reality is that most Americans, that's where you start, right? That's how my parents built wealth. They bought one home, and then they took the equity and put it into another home, and then they took an equ the equity and put it into another home, and now they're sitting with a $1.5 million property because they built equity over time. So... Anyway, I think we could, we could debate that in a number of ways, but I am definitely a fan because also looking at what, you know, talking specifically to women is we need to better appreciate and know our value. And if we're primary residence owners and we take that value out, what are we working so hard for? Yeah. So let's make sure we celebrate our accomplishments because it wasn't until the 1900s we could own our own property to begin with. So let's champion that, that we are homeowners. Let's start there and keep building. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great um, message to kind of move into uh, the final segment of the podcast. I like to ask everyone what where they see themselves in the next year and the next five years. I love that. So by this time next year, I'll have two high schoolers. My son will be a junior and my youngest will be 
a, a freshman in high school, so I see myself driving to a lot of football games. <laughs> <laughs> My business, I'm going to keep growing. By this time, this time next year, I believe that I will be a voice, the voice for women in finance, and I'm really excited for that. And then you said 10 years? Five years. Five years. My goal is to give my husband the option to not work. What I'm really building all of this for is that he has the freedom to do whatever it is that he wants to do in life because he's worked really hard. And by then, he'll have worked 30 years in the same company. Ooh. And I want to give that gift to him looking at his 50th birthday that he can do what it is that he wants to do with his life. He doesn't have to collect a paycheck anymore. So for me, that's my motivation. No, that that's that's awesome. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're basically there. My wife is an occupational therapist, so she works maybe five to ten hours a week you know with her patients but really she doesn't she probably doesn't even need, need to do that but it's something that she enjoys doing sure. so she likes to do it a little bit with flexibility so that's right i want i want more people to do more of what they love so awesome well thank you again for providing such valuable insight and for all the young listeners out there obviously your podcast and your your course your uh um, stop budgeting system and ideas are, are sound like they're a great approach for people who always find themselves struggling with money and what best ways they could kind of change their own habits to improve their financial picture. Thank you. Yep. I'm on a mission and I can't wait to have you on my show as well. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Lisa.